Before I start today, I wanted to mention that this episode will be in two parts and will cover sensitive topics like molestation, homosexuality and emotional rape. Welcome to Breaking Free. I'm Rania Kurdi, a transformational life coach, comedian and mother of two. And you can join me weekly to hear some intimate self-reflections and conversations with inspirational friends and guests from all around the world sharing what they needed to break free from in order to live a life of purpose. My guest on Breaking Free today is Madian Al-Jazeera, a successful businessman and human rights activist living in Jordan. He's Palestinian but wasn't raised in Palestine. He's Kuwaiti-born but not Kuwaiti. He's British-educated but not a Westerner. He's a gay man out of the closet but still living in the shadows is how he is described in the preface of his honest and moving memoir, Are You This or Are You This? A Story of Identity and Worth. I'm so excited to speak to you. Hi, Madian, about your amazing book today. Hello, Rania. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. I love how the title of your memoir, Are You This or Are You This? applies to so many of the challenges you faced and still face with your identity and your sexuality. And in your memoir, you describe how your grandfather lost everything in Palestine and your grandmother was a noblewoman, a sheikha from Jenin, which is the occupied West Bank. But you grew up in Kuwait with your parents and four siblings, only knowing about Palestine from stories you were told. And I love the story of the tabbouleh. Uh, yes, this is actually a, you know, it's a funny story, but um, um, but at the same time, it it. it talks about you know the, the historical elements and emotional elements of what was going on in the you know in the in the late 30s early 40s in Palestine and this is my grandmother who had just prepared this big bowl of tabbouleh for her daughters for her five daughters my one of them my mom my mom and my aunties and they had a few friends over as well my grandfather wasn't at home then and and it's really interesting talking getting the information out of my mom as well um you know telling that that story in particular uh, because uh, they would remember for instance the buzzing of the airplanes the spitfires and in arabic the, she would tell me mama the spit the spit <laughs> and i had no idea what she was talking about and then found out that the spitfires were manufactured and came out that particular year and they would hear them when they would hear the engines roaring somewhere near Afula, which is, you know, a 20 minute ride from Janine. They knew there was going to be an air raid. So they just pick up and run. But they had done it a few times. This And that particular time, it was a bit, um, it lasted a little longer because it was later found out that it was the great um, battle of Janine which the Iraqis fought in and the Palestinians fought in and, and all of this. And at that time, they just they just left everything on the table and they started to run to where they normally run, which is uh, up, you know, and further up the hill, they were up on a mountain kind of, and they would hide in a cave. But as they were running, they realized that, the, that it, it was a little more dangerous and that somebody along the way told them that they should be just running. The, 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 the cave wasn't the place to go. They had run into a few soldiers dressed up as civilians, whom they later found out were actually Israeli soldiers um, who speak Arabic. And they were telling them, run this way, run this way. 
and they were running towards the the, the area to towards Janine and the house. So she tells them, because it's a small town, she tells them, you go tell Nayef that I took the girls and we're running to the to the mountain, think, thinking they're Arab farmers. And then turns around and says, and don't eat the tabbouleh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really funny because as they're running for their lives, she was worried about the tabbouleh because that, those were for the girls. Yes. And, and interestingly enough, what's more funny, I think, is as ultimately they ended running, running much farther than Janine. And uh, and they noticed that my one of my aunties, Auntie May, was just dilly dallying in the back, and you know and my my grandmother would keep telling her, you know, Yalla, get it. Why are you walking so slow? Hurry up with everybody! Hurry up with everybody! Later on, she tells Mama, I'm you know, if if a bomb comes down, we're all gonna die together. No, somebody has to stay to keep the name, <laughs> so, the family name, the family name, and and you know, she was so young yet she was thinking that. Exactly. That's what's so sad. So even though we can laugh at these stories and you laughed at these stories, um, sometimes we're not looking at the the horrific side to it. It's easier not to actually and, and find the humour and everything because that's what helps us to carry on. Yes. I mean, isn't it? Yeah, yes, yes. Um, I mean, there were, you know, literally planes flying over, bombs falling, they're running for their lives. And this mm. funny incident. <laughs> incident happens yeah. that you can only laugh at later um, and they couldn't go back home could they it was a, a big exodus and they can continued they they ended up in Arabba for uh, about um an, for all, almost a month they didn't want people to come back because there were a lot of dead bodies and there was a lot of smell and, and odor of you know smell of death basically so they were away for a month that particular exodus and your mother um, had a fear of balloons because it sounded like the bombs. Yeah, there was the one particular time when uh, the bombs fell a lot faster than they could run. And and immediately after, you know, it was like a short bombing and, and the planes flew away. But immediately after, my mom found out that her really good friend, this young man, uh, was killed in that bombing. And she's been traumatized since then. We grew up no balloons. Mm. Every time a balloon would, would would pop, my mom would, you could tell there was terror in her face. She's 86 and you still get the same look. Mm. Yeah, it's trauma. And trauma needs trauma. healing. Yeah. You know, your your conscious mind knowing that it's a balloon popping isn't enough. It has to be healed from the subconscious. Yes, yes. Yeah. And and that's what's interesting about your book as well, Median, is that now as a as an older man, you're looking back and understanding what is trauma and what has caused triggers for you or for the family. You're looking at it from a very different perspective. Absolutely. It's a, definitely a different view. And it's it's a view I mean, when I'm sitting at peace uh, in, you know, feeling safe in a safe space. Um, is totally different than being in it. Mm. And when you're a little more at these, more stuff comes, you know, more information comes to you, more feelings, more emotions. Yeah. The analysis of it becomes a lot easier. Which is why a lot of people run away from being still. They keep themselves busy, 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 because it's that stillness. Or being alone. Yeah. But, you know, this COVID, this part of COVID that we just <laughs> went through, left a lot of people sitting on their own. And when you sit on your own, there's the silence. And, and that silence 
actually could be the best thing ever because that's how you hash out exactly all your fears and all your issues they just keep coming up they just yeah. keep coming up and this is what i did mm. and as a child you were fascinated with planes you were always asking about the spitfires but that didn't go away did it i mean i was really fascinated <laughs> myself with that you take longer flights and stopovers as many stopovers as possible i can't believe somebody actually does that and you save most things from the um, aeroplane as well. Tell me, what's that about? Yeah, I don't know where this came from, uh, but from a very, very young age, I, you know, I could be crying and a plane would, you know, something resembling an engine of a plane and I would stop and start looking. I love it. I love the airline industry. I love airplanes. My house is full of models. Every time I fly a plane, I take a, you know, I buy a model. I mean, when I was in college, you know, it was already, I went to college when I was 16 and, and I'm 56. So this was a long time ago. Flights were not direct. You know, I, I, from Kuwait, I would have to go to Vienna and then Munich. Then actually I could have just gone to London, then New York, then St. Louis, then Oklahoma City, and then drive an hour and a half to OSU in Oklahoma. But no, I would go to Vienna, then Munich, then Brussels, then London, then New York. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, I, I backtrack, you know, to I could do a nonstop from Amman to Chicago 14 hours, but no, <laughs> I have to do three hours back to Doha. So I could do 15 hours, you know, something. And you're actually upset that you slept through one of the flights. <laughs> yes. For my 45th birthday I gave my well the Airbus 380 had just come out this is the big double deck like the jumbo jet the 747 but it was two whole floors of airplane so and and I you know I treated myself to a flight so I called up Air France and I said what's the longest flight you have you know they said Washington's I've done it too short and then they said Tokyo I said how much I said 12 hours 40 Book me that one. And I was, and I treated myself to a business class ticket. So I get on the plane and I'm just the most excited, you know, and, and, you know, by that time, I think the lack of sleep kicked in and it was only like four hours in and I fall asleep. <laughs> I woke up just a few hours before Tokyo. I, I couldn't handle the weight that I had slept over six hours on that plane where most people would you know would welcome it exactly i think listeners will be so amused that there's someone who likes the opposite you know they're they're usually like taking a sleeping pill or something to get them through these horrible long flights <laughs> but, uh, for me no <laughs> you know this flight was all about the flying so because i had missed this i only stayed four days in tokyo because i had to get back on the plane and make sure that I was awake <laughs> all the way through. <laughs> but sadly, your mum was against you working in the airlines. She saw that you being a steward would be like, I don't know, waiting on people. She didn't at first. It wasn't even the steward. I wouldn't mind. I would love to. Even now on planes, because I have restaurants, I, you know, I want to get up and help. Mm. I, I enjoy that. I enjoy service. I enjoy meeting people while I'm serving. It just feels like home. And um, and Mama thought I was going to be a pilot. And to her, na habibi, no chauffeur. No. <laughs> and no, uh, you know, no son of hers was going to be a chauffeur. Yeah. I said, Mom, it's a pilot. No chauffeur, chauffeur. At the end of the day, it's a chauffeur, Mama. You know, it mm. was that kind of <laughs> attitude she had at that time. 
Whereas I didn't want to be a pilot. I actually just wanted to be a, a flight attendant. And, uh, and I knew that wouldn't run by her. It wouldn't fly with her. So I said pilot. And that didn't fly either. It sounded like you had a very good life, a good childhood in Kuwait, studied at a British school, a private school, and had lots of fun times as a as a family. But there was also moments of feeling shame as a child. And you tell a very honest account of molestation, an account, you know, that so many men especially shy away from. Yes, um, we're continuously being fed that you will grow and you will marry and you will marry the opposite sex. And, and, you know, and then you have your whole family to look at. You look at your mom, you look at your dad, there's this love going on and there's going to be a family. And that's what we're raised on. The mom, the mother, the father, the male, the female, the opposite sex and that going on. And there's always a little thing in the back of my head growing up where I felt like it wasn't the girlfriends in my class that I wanted to have that with. It was the boyfriends, in my, you know, the male and you don't understand it then. And then, you know, and, and then as I grew, I was, still a young, I was still young when I got molested. And I have to say, uh, you know, I probably need therapy because I, I thought I was being loved. I was lucky it was not a violent molestation. It was quite soft. But I, but I thought I was being loved. I can't remember feeling afraid I, I and you know and I, when I tell this to some people you know they tell me I need therapy I do I'm sure I do I'm sure there's stuff that I've shelved in there but I don't remember having fear I only rem- I don't you know I don't have fear but one thing I look back upon is that this part this part of intimacy of having your clothes off uh, I never, never felt it anymore. It's when you grow up as an adult and you realise that it wasn't consensual, that it was someone taking advantage of you, that's where the need for healing comes. Absolutely. And, you know, as, as I said, then I wasn't feeling anything. I just, you know, I was angry because he stopped loving me. Uh, but at an older age, when I got older and I could put things together, um, yes, it was not consensual. He had no right. It was an invasion. Um, it was rape. And rape does not have to be penetration. Rape, it, rape can be emotional. Um, uh, uh, but one, one interesting thing was, is that I sometimes would wear two layers of clothing at night, uh, which later I found is a way of preventing molestation even as a child you think you don't like the act and part of the act was taking your your clothes being taken off yes you like the loving you like the innocent parts and but but then there's the act of your clothes being taken off yeah. so for me to stop it from happening i wore double exactly so the amount of even clothes. though you remember that it wasn't fearful that's an act of fear, isn't it? To protect yourself to it's, do that. It's subconscious. Yes, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't remember in my head thinking, yeah. this is what I'll do. Yeah. But that's what I was doing. I've had similar experiences and so many clients as well that I talk to and friends have had their experiences as a child. You know, a lot of children are taken advantage of because of their innocence and their, their naivety. 
and their need for love, it's very easy to take advantage of them and manipulate. And, and the shame and the worry and the, and the secrecy or, or the blocking of it, you know, it's easy to just block it and say, oh, it doesn't hurt me or it wasn't so bad. And um, it, it sort of, it gnaws at you slowly and it is the reason that you may behave in certain ways, whether it's promiscuity or being overweight to protect yourself or doing so many things in adulthood or sabotaging partnerships that you don't actually realise are the source of those things that you've gone through at an earlier age. I think that's uh, very well said because these elements are, are elements that I've and attitudes that I did notice. Yeah, and it's so easy to, it's so easy to blame yourself, you know, um, but, but you're not seeing the source of why you've become like that. Just like when bullies become bullies, it's usually because they've been bullied or abusers have been abused. Um, and so looking at the source and understanding it to find that healing and that love for self is, is really necessary. It is, and it's not easy to get that because mm. shame always kicks in. Shame just kicks in. Um, you know, how was I, when everything around me was saying, you know, the opposite sex, you are to be with the opposite sex, how was I even to complain about it or talk about it? I was doing something different, something wrong. Everything, you know, and, and even as a child, as you grow older, you hear stuff, you know, don't cry. It's, you know, crying is for girls. Mm. And don't you know boys should be men um uh, men don't do this men don't i'll tell you they're almost telling you men don't feel and should not feel and should not have emotions and and as you have any kind of emotion vulnerable vulnerable emotions while while you think of what i would think about what had happened you know, I would, you know, there, there was, I, I was not allowed to feel it. Yeah, you wouldn't allow yourself just like others wouldn't allow you. And so, so, you know, there's shame, there's guilt, there's your whole being. Yeah. Uh, start, is, is, get, it gets negated and it puts you in very dark places. And even when you were 16 and you went to study architecture at Oklahoma State University, um, you were still innocent and naive. If you were to look back now and 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 think, you know, you tried and wanted to fall in love with a woman, and you did, but there's only so far you could go and realise that you, you can't do that. You were still not accepting your sexuality. You still didn't understand your sexuality as a, as a teenager. And you heard fag for the first time and felt really hurt. But instead of realising that, oh, you know... Am I gay? Why are people saying that I'm gay? You actually thought, oh, maybe Americans don't like fashion and it's because of the way I dress or, you know, and I could still see and read that innocence when you'd moved to America to study. Yeah, it was there. I mean, again, as I, as I said, you, I continuously fought it. I, I didn't want to be gay, but then I wasn't using the term gay. I didn't know the term gay. Um, even when I was called a fag, the word gay wasn't really being used in the media, you know, um, and I wasn't familiar with it. I wasn't, you know, I knew fag meant somebody, you know, a boy who likes 
boys and as acting like a girl and 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 now your you know your whole value is much much less um i knew i was being looked down upon and i and that hurt to be looked down upon um and 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 that's the thing when someone named you know when someone calls you a fag it's homophobia one two it makes you, it, it's, it's said to put you down. It's said to bring down your value. It's said to, and the first thing yes. they, you know, anybody, any man does to make another man feel less is to devalue them by making them, you know, that by making them feel less of a man, which means a woman. So the insinuations are, oh, yo, stop being such a sissy, stop being such a silly, whatever. You know, everything they they put in all the attributes of females and girls, yeah. and don't be such a little girl, you know. Uh, and and this is where this whole book came out came from is how there's hierarchy in value. So you know, you've got the man, there's you've got patriarchy, you've got the male figure, masculinity. And that comes number one, he rules. And then you've got the woman, the female, she comes number two, because, you know, the man is dominant over the woman. Um, but when you're a gay man, you're third in line, because I have betrayed masculinity in their eyes. I could be the most, I mean, there are the most masculine men that are gay, but that's not how heterosexual homophobe sees it. Just like they would see, you know, uh, you know, a man tops a woman, and and that's why they are dominant, and the woman is less. Which is not the reality. It can be totally equal or swapping, or you know, in any straight or gay relationship. But that's exactly. where their thoughts go to, and um, you know, it's not focused on the love or the relationship. It's focused on that. It's focused on the power mm. and the value. And I think gay men know what women feel like because you know they are sexually harassed in the same way that they are sort of devalued and seen less than and weaker like women are treated absolutely absolutely but here's the thing as well i didn't just face this with males with mass you know with a patriarchal male masculine men you, i you know homophobia comes from women as well and as you know, as the homosexual world, or I would align myself with women thinking and saying that, you know, we have the same problem. We don't, because I come third in line, as I mentioned earlier. I think women endure abuse when they go through this heterosexual patriarchal world. It's all abuse. Yeah. And, and some women, when they see a gay man, due to their own issues, trample over this gay man because... They enforce that, yeah, you are less than me. You want to be me, thinking that all gay men want to be women, which is not true. Mm. And then I get the abuse from women. So the power play yeah. comes from that woman, from that female. And this is it's just this is just to, you know, just to tell you how, you know, we are even less so complex. in value. Yeah. And and even your mother was looking at it that way which is very hurtful especially as she's an educated woman like you explain and you know you wouldn't have expected that that would be her issue with with your sexuality um, and I think the saddest part about it that even you know okay she accepts you and loves you as her son she stopped the hugging I think yes 
and you know, and I had to think long and hard. Well, first of all, it's um, my mother was worried about my value. It was she wasn't she wasn't worried about what people said. She was worried about my value. And down the line, she was worried about my life in general, how, you know, a value, not having value in society just puts you down in everywhere. And this is exactly what was going on, even in my professional life, as I wrote in the book. The number of times I was viewed less, I was viewed weak, and, and hence, you know, trampled on or someone trying to control, uh, control me. Um, so to her, it was an issue of value. But then, you know, her not hugging me took me a while to figure out. I think she was traumatized. And, you know, sometimes when you're traumatized by information, you know, she didn't want me to be. She didn't think I would ever come out and say I was a gay man. And to her, it was shocking, as I think it was shocking to my dad as well. And when you're shocked that way, I mean, I think every mother, or every father probably, she yeah. probably had this massive dream that she had planned out of me getting married to a beautiful woman and having beautiful children and small children and mm. fun children like me, you know, and she's probably thinking about this amazing life that I was going to have as a husband to a woman, to a female, to, you know, and have to have bear, bear her grandchildren. And this was all shattered with what, you know, with me coming out and that shock just, you know, just traumatized her. And when people get traumatized, they shelf. Yeah. She just shelved me. Shut down, felt numb. Everything goes, yeah. doesn't it? She yeah. didn't know how to deal with that pain. So she shelved it. It was like, it's not there. It's not there. It's not mm. there. And treated me like nothing had happened. But then subconsciously, you know, I'm sure down the, somewhere in there, she thought, oh, maybe I loved him too much. Maybe his father should have loved him more. He's effeminate because he hung around me a lot. It was my fault. I influenced him. I'm a strong figure and, and he, you know, he looks up to me. So now he wants to be a woman. God knows what went on in her. Well, what's interesting is you go back in history and start looking into your grandmother's life, your grandfather's life, your mother's childhood and understanding it from that perspective. That even though she's an educated woman, she felt lesser than even though her mom was a sheikha and a noble woman that was really respected, she felt lesser than because she couldn't give your grandfather a son. And so the talk amongst people was that, you know, my God, she can't give him a son. And, and she, she miscarried uh, a boy. Couldn't, have, couldn't the boy have survived instead of your mother? And my mom heard it. Yeah. So her hearing these things, you've analyzed it that, you know, she has that feeling of being less. And so it's a trigger for her that you being less in people's eyes is the same feeling of pain that she probably went through. Absolutely. It's all tied in. And, and you know, it's so unfortunate that our women had to and still go through this. Mm. Again, it's patriarchy. It's yeah. the power, the control that males need to have over women. Yes, even though thousands of years ago, women were worshipped. We've lost that in a patriarchal world that's just Absolutely. about gain, gain, gain. You know, our women were warriors. You know, Prophet mm. Muhammad uh, you know, married a warrior. She led an army. You know, and, and the other one was a businesswoman out there 
And she and asked, she asked him, to him to marry her. I mean, the signs were all there for equality. Yet mm. religion or that message was robbed, was yes. robbed and turned around. In part two of this episode, Median will talk openly about becoming homeless and feeling depressed after the Gulf War invasion on Kuwait and how he was gay bashed and put in witness protection in San Francisco and eventually moved to Jordan to be with his family and started several successful businesses. So do remember to tune in next week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Breaking Free, please share it with your friends or on your social media platforms. And of course, I'd really love it if you can subscribe, rate or review the show. You can reach me directly at raniakurdi.com if you would like to ask a question, comment on what you heard today or find out how I can support you on your journey.